So what had happened was we were going to watch Hamlet and I opened up my Plex and I was like, oh, there's Face Off. <laughs> what if we watched Face Off tonight? And you're like, no, that's longer. And then yeah. I, I was like, oh, haha, but it would be so much fun. And you're like, oh, maybe we could watch Face Off. And then I hit play. <laughs> I don't even feel like it was nearly that dragged out. <laughs> I, you were just like... I was like, oh, Face Off, that's a great movie. And you were like, oh, what if we just watch Face Off? And I was like, no, it's like a half hour longer, and I'm just, like, tired. And then you just hit play. Yeah. Yeah, and then we were just watching Face Off. Hi, everybody, and welcome to Our Named Stairwells. This is a movie podcast. I'm not... Not him. <laughs> not him. <'em. laughs> what I... What I... <laughs> Halfway through doing it, I remembered that what I wanted to say was, Hi, everybody. Welcome to Ornate Stairwells, a movie podcast. I'm Neve, and I'm joined, as always, by Autumn. Hi, I'm Autumn. <laughs> I... It's a face-off joke. Yeah. It's a face-off joke. <laughs> yeah. And they, they've traded our voices, too, because yeah. that's part of how it works. I want to take his face oh. off. <laughs> so the other bit, I, I think I tweeted this, so people may have seen it, uh-huh. but was that the they took the posters off. <laughs> and so that's why we got mixed up on Plex because they swapped posters. So we went and, and we clicked on the Hamlet poster. We clicked on the Hamlet poster. And it just started playing Face Off. What were we supposed to do? Not watch Face yeah. Off? <laughs> do you, did you want me to stop it and go to Face Off and see if, if it was Hamlet? Because that just seems like a waste of time. Yeah. But before we get to Face Off... Um... <clears throat> We kind of watched some other movies. I I went deep into the manga rabbit hole this week. Yeah. I read so much manga. I wanted to do this and didn't. Yeah. For other reasons. But. Yeah. I just like... And when I was watching stuff, I was just watching TNG. I'm just deep in the Star Trek rabbit hole. Yeah. I am just like... I have gone two days without watching TNG, and I feel antsy about it. I'm like, when do I get to watch more Star Trek? Do I get to watch Star Trek after I go home tonight? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> for for I'll let you talk about manga in a little bit. I'll probably yeah. jump in with my own little comments at some mm-hmm. point. Because I've also been reading Berserk, which you yeah. finished. Did you finish that this week or two, two weeks ago, maybe? Yeah. Um. But yeah, I so... Like, one, I've just been busy with mom stuff. Mm-hmm. But the bigger things with all of this is, um, so my inhaler ran mm-hmm. out, and it wasn't, it was, like, helping, but it wasn't fully working. Mm-hmm. And so I switch, I had to switch to another one. That I have to try another one that's still not the one that works for me, because insurance wants me to jump through a bunch of hoops. And then it took them, like, a week to get it to me, so I was just without an inhaler for a week. Um, and you like briefly saw it. We didn't do anything because I didn't have like the yeah. energy to do more than we like briefly hung out. Yeah. Um, I just did not have the energy to even watch a movie. Mm-hmm. It turned out, but yeah, I was just fucking drained. Yeah. All week. Yeah. Um, I just feel like I am, you know, like when you like have a head cold and you just want to go to bed. Yeah. It's kind of just like that. Or like, you're just like kind of sick where you're like, yeah. So I just felt like that for most of the week, which means that like, I didn't exercise during my lunches i just took a nap and i went to bed early Mm -hmm. um and 
I would sometimes sit and like start reading a manga and then just get tired and go to bed. So, yeah. um, and then the other thing is one of my other main movie watching times is while I'm at work, but also this week, uh, I changed roles. I actually moved back to the department I was in previously. So it's not that different. Mm-hmm. Um, and honestly, the situation I'm in, in that department is now better than when I left it. Like, that's good. Like, I'm just working with one person now, and that one person is someone who I like working with. Um, so that's going to be good, but it was just a ton of meetings with him, uh, and also like meetings with other people, handing off work that I had been working on these past few months. So I just didn't really have movie watching time. I was just catching up on podcasts. Um, Friends of the Table released like two extremely long Lancer episodes because mm-hmm. they're doing it for like the road to palisade or whatever um, oh neat and i'm looking forward to palisade uh lancer seems like a really fucking fun game or yeah really fucking fun game to play not the best audio yeah which is fine they they do like a decent job uh punching it up but so much of the joy is like they do get a cool role and then it's them describing it what they did right Mm. But also D20 systems are such where just often you fail and then it's just boring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but yeah, that's mostly what I've been doing. Also just listening to like friends podcasts because that's most of what I listen to. Yeah. So. I see you making your whole little list. Do you want me to say my little thing about Berserk? Say your little thing about Berserk. I have a quick little gimmick to get through the manga very quickly. So you say your okay. thing about Berserk. Um, I just finished the Lost Children arc part like of it? the conviction. It was okay. Yeah. I'm so, like, they, this Berserk is no Nana. <laughs> and I know that you and M disagree, at uh-huh. least so far. You haven't finished Nana. I haven't finished Berserk. I, you go, you go. Just anything that I've gotten to so far does not, I have read like the number of volumes that almost that is not, Mm -hmm. and it just hasn't, but also I'm aware of the fact that it's like, cause I also read a couple, two chapters of, um, neighborhood story, which is one of the manga that Yozawa I did before like paradise kiss and, um, Nana. It is actually basically like Paradise Kiss is the sequel to Neighborhood Story. There are mm-hmm. characters in Neighborhood Story who are main characters. Um, and like, well, kids who are grown up and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. But, um, and like, it's been fine, but it's, it's not hitting like Nana is. Yeah. And I, I, because it's just her earlier work. And I think what's weird about Berserk is that it's just like, basically the first thing that he did and then he does it his whole life and then he does it his entire life yeah i mean he did like some side things yeah while he was doing it and before he did it he was like working on other stuff but yeah but not like as the person writing it Mm. and so you're just seeing like him being the person doing the manga and like learning it throughout where like the black swordsman chapters are dog shit i read the like people told me it gets better it gets better and i was just like if this was it like if I just sat down and I read this uh-huh. without any like people telling me that Berserk, Berserk is good is and good. stuff, I would like have read that first volume and been like, well, I guess I'm not reading this comic because that sucked. <laughs> and I think some of it is that I just don't care that much about fights. 
Mm-hmm. And this is the, the biggest feel that I have, which is that I came to this realization that I just don't think I care about fights in any medium. Mm-hmm. What I care about sometimes is like, like I like fights in movies mm. when it is especially like physical, the Hong Kong. Yeah. Like it is about like people performing. Yeah. Um, there are sometimes other fights that aren't in that, like people performing and doing the stunts. They can still be cool. There are some like sick fights that will happen in, in anime. I'm generally not as big on anime fights as like something I get really excited for mm-hmm. as like in a Hong Kong movie. And I think it's because it's also like, I'm also really blown away when someone can emote really well on screen. Those still feel like different, like further different Mm -hmm. talents for someone to have. Whereas with like being able to draw really well, you do have specialties. Some people can draw fights really well. Some people can draw like faces and faces emoting really well. But especially when it's like drawing in animation or drawing in manga, like I'm going to be so much more blown away by like how Yuzawa I can lay out a page and can do these really simple but expressive faces and all of that. Yeah. Then like, oh, that that fight was like really cool the way it was mm-hmm. choreographed in a manga because they just mm. like I'm gonna be just as blown away by him just drawing like someone standing with just like in a field and there's just all the details of the forest around them or something. Mm-hmm. As I am going to be him drawing a really sick shot of him swinging a sword or something. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because it's what I care about more is like the actual drawing of it. And I just don't care that much about fights and so much of Berserkus fights. Mm -hmm. So I'm waiting for like, I know that I'm basically at the point where the the RPG party is going to start assembling. And this might be the part where I start enjoying it because it's going to be hopefully become more character interactions. Yes. But like... I, I liked, I think, the Golden Arc more than the Lost Children, mm. because the Golden Age was like, there would be these fights, but then there'd be this part where it's like, they're back at camp, and they're interacting, yeah. and I'm seeing the relationships between the characters. The Bonfire of Dreams is the best part of all of yes. the Golden Age. None of the and, fights. And now, I'm just back into fights, and there's a little bit of stuff, but it's not, it's not characters who are being built up that I feel super mm. attached to, and Puck is fun, but is is still like too much of the comic relief where I need other interactions yes. going on yes. and not just the really serious guts and the comic relief puck and then these characters who I know are not just not gonna stick around that long. Puck is gonna get better once he has a Cedro, you know? And you just don't know Isidro yeah. yet. So Yeah. I just need like character like especially in manga, I care so much about characters interacting. Uh-huh. That is like what I love. And there's been a few good moments of it in the Golden Age, but, like, there's been so little bang for the buck for me when the, it comes to that, <clears throat> compared to, I read one volume of Nana, and I'm just like, god damn. So, I don't know exactly how the timeline shakes out, but I know that Miura was, like, supervising director on the 97 anime. Yeah. And by the time, by 97, he is already getting into... Like, here is the JRPG party stuff in the manga. And so, I think in general, the 97 anime does a better job of focusing on characters than the manga did. And so, Mm -hmm. I think maybe the 97 anime will hit better for you. I will also just say that, like, Em and I had very different experiences of Berserk, where 
I like the Black Swordsman stuff. It's it's bad. It's stupid. It's gross yeah. for gross sake. But I also, like, like you read through all of Naruto, and I just don't think I could ever do that. And there's yeah. probably still some character interactions in that, but like Naruto's bad. <laughs> yeah, I love Naruto. I love Naruto with my whole heart. It sucks. Yeah, <laughs> Naruto never gave me what I wanted ever. <laughs> Well, and I think the other thing that I'm running up against with Berserk is sometimes I also think about um, Lone Wolf and Cub, which does have, like, some interactions between, like, Lone Wolf and his son. Uh-huh. And then also with these, like, characters who show up. But Lone Wolf and Cub is oriented in such an episodic nature, where sometimes stuff will push, like, the broader plot forward. But really it is, and this happens, too, in Berserk, where it's like, okay, this is the lost children part or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in Lone Wolf and Cub, it'll be like a chapter or two. It's not even a full volume. Yeah. And so I think some of it too is just the scale of Berserk. I also just read through and I like in my head, I often think about like, here's the chapter, here's where it's stopping. Here's where I'm moving on. And the chapters in Berserk are short. And Mm -hmm. sometimes there are chapters where I'm just like, if I was reading this, I'd be like, nothing fucking happened. He just swung his sword some, like, I don't fucking care. (laughs) I don't fucking care about him swinging a sword. Yeah. In the way that I care about everything else. Costco's not there anymore. Like, both, like, mentally faculty yeah. and also in the manga right now. She's just not there. You're getting I back just to, want her back. You're getting back to where Kasuka will be yeah. part of the manga, um, which is going to be good. Yeah. I, so, Em and I had very different experiences where I'm pretty high on early Berserk stuff. And I think Em is of the opinion that, like, oh, Berserk doesn't get good until the, the RPG party starts showing this up. This might be me. <laughs> and I just, I think that is going to, I think you two yeah. are going to, you're... I really latched on to Shirka. Um, I know M is a huge Farnese fan. I could see you like really latching on to either of those um, and just being like, like Shirka and Farnese by volume 40, like by the present day are the main characters. Guts is not the main <laughs> character in present Berserk. Yeah. The fandom doesn't know the fan. I was deep in like watching like, oh, what's going to happen next in Berserk? This was like a... This is a type of video that I was watching a lot of this week, mostly just to kill time. I just I was not like, oh my god, they're so right. They're these predictions they're making, they're all gonna come true. I was just killing time watching these videos. Um and none of the people who make those videos recognize that Shirka and Farnese are like the main characters, but like Guts is just not the main guy anymore and i think mm. you're going to like the sh- the book more once it gets there yeah um and it's so <laughs> i recognize the inherent absurdity of saying no volume 20 is when berserk turns into what berserk is but that's kind of true yeah <laughs> is well that... and i i understand it of like oh other people would do multiple works and he just like he kept doing this he kept doing this and he just made it into a different manga at some point yes it is just a different book at a certain yeah point. and i might enjoy that stuff but the for me i'm sitting at this point where i'm just like it's absurd to me that anyone would at this point even say that berserk is better than nana <laughs> nana is so fantastically <laughs> written from page one <laughs> like this is your hill to die on um, Nana is a fucking masterpiece, and Berserk is like I'm not mid at it's best not. for twenty volumes. I'm not saying it's not. I'm <laughs> That's saying all I'm saying I'm saying those last twenty volumes better be fucking incredible. They are. I am also just saying that Berserk is a masterpiece from like volume two onward. <laughs> mm. 
Minus when Wild shows up. Mm. <laughs> God, the wild, the wild stuff. Oh, it's so bad. <laughs> it's fucking, I fucking miserable. Hated it. Okay, I almost dropped out at Wild, but I was just like, like I was tweeting about it, and then you're like, "Oh, it's the worst part," and I'm like, "Okay, I will push through." Yes. Mira, is, Mira regrets just like doing all that, and I'm yes. like, okay, yes, I will push through. Yes, Mira does it like, Mira is like, in hindsight, that was all a little bit much. That he's not in the anime for a reason. Yeah, like, but besides, like, oh, it would be too much to show him. He's just not there because he's yeah, not interesting. He doesn't like, add anything. Because there's all the like horrible stuff that he's doing. Yeah. It's over the top, but I watch, like, V-Cinema and J-Horror. Mm. I'm fine with ridiculously over-the-top stuff. It's just, it's just it's the boring. fact that it's not fun. Yeah. It's not well-written. It's, it's just boring. miserable. It's just miserable. Yeah. <clears throat> if you're going to have someone getting an absolute fucking sicko on the page, like, make it fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> I read a bunch of manga... And I don't want to really cover it in depth here, uh, because one, it's too much manga. Two, my reading has been very scattershot. I've been mainly focusing on Nana, but like I have been reading... hell yeah, let's fucking talk about Nana. No, we're not. <laughs> There's a moment in the first chapter discussion for Pondering Bhutan, uh -huh. where Connor roasts me for how much I talk about Nana. <laughs> And I laughed so hard on the podcast that I gave myself a smoker's cough for the rest of the episode. Um, and then I, like, could not breathe properly that night. <laughs> this was after I had gotten back my inhaler. So, <clears throat> shit. No, wait, I hadn't. Oh, man, I really fucked myself up that night. Um, oh, Christ almighty. I was picking up my phone and just typed in a bunch of stuff. Anyway, so... <clears throat> I don't want to cover it in depth, partially because there's too much stuff and it's been too scattershot. I've been focusing on Nana, but, like, reading a lot of other things mixed in there. <clears throat> and also, part of the reason I don't want to cover it is that, like, manga is my thing that I'm doing that I don't have to talk about on a podcast right now. Yeah. I can just read things, and probably when I finish series, I will bring it up here or on export or something... If it's something but, that I've also read and that we might do on, like, if there's an anime we might do on Ghost Divers, we could even do a manga cafe about it. I don't even think, but... most of the stuff doesn't even have an anime, yeah. I don't think. Or does, but anyway. Anyway, so, like, I just don't really want to cover it in depth. I'm enjoying it as my own thing that I'm not doing for podcasts. So, to get through this very quickly, what I'm going to do is I'm going to deliver to the listeners now... My ranking of all the series I have read. Do you want me to start from the bottom or from the top? Um, I've already seen the list. Yes. I didn't know that it was in the order that you were doing this. Uh, yeah, if I thought about it more. If I, I knew, if, if, if I was like... If I thought about it more, I would have held my phone away from you. So you because, couldn't see. Because then... I don't know what would have been funnier for how long before... It probably would have been funnier to start at the top and then just me yes. going through, you think this is better than Nana? <laughs> anyway. Should I start at the bottom or the top? I don't care at this point. I'm going to start at the top. Okay. Yotsuba. 
That I think I like Nana more, but I can I, I can accept that. Yeah, like you can't. Yotsuba uh, is fucking incredible. <laughs> you can't argue with like Yotsuba being one of the best things ever. Yeah. Yotsuba might be better than Berserk. I like. I said I've been busy doing a lot of mom mom stuff. I don't talk about my child very often on podcasts for a reason, which is that I'm like very private about that stuff. But that is the majority of what I do with my time. And just reading Yotsuba, like a manga that's about a small child and the things small children do. Uh Fucking incredible. (laughs) That is how it is. Even the ones where you're like, that's not how it is. Where Yotsuba is like wearing a suit and holding a gun. Yeah. That's how it is. That's what having a that's what having a small child in your life is like. Number two, which had atelier? I know you are not going to agree that this is better than Nana. I haven't read it, but awesome. You when you read it, you are I not going to like it. Why. Yes, it, which had atelier is special to me. It's just my favorite mm-hmm. fucking thing. Um, I've been rereading like some stuff. I I got to volume seven tonight. I think. Anyway, um, <clears throat> three Nana. It's fucking yeah. incredible. It's fucking amazing. There's nothing on here that I would have been outraged if you didn't mm-hmm. if you didn't show me the list before you did it. Yeah. Number I f- would have been faux outraged about a rich ha- witch had atelier, but <laughs> um, not a fucking great. Number four, uh, Rose of Versailles probably has a good chance to move up as I read more. Um, I'm really enjoying Rose of Versailles. Number five, Full Metal Alchemist. It's just my favorite. It- Fullmetal Alchemist Brotherhood, my favorite anime, and um, I like the manga better. So, I've only yeah. read a volume and a half of Fullmetal Alchemist so far, but it, this start is way better than how Brotherhood starts. Way better. Yeah. And like, did you ever watch the original anime? No. no. Okay. I have not watched Brotherhood. I've only watched the original. I know how the original ends, and I'm like, I don't even understand that. And it's like one of those things that, like, maybe as a curiosity, one of these days I'll do, but like. It's not, it's not happening in like the next five years, you know. Yeah, but my understanding is that Brotherhood is kind of based on knowing that people have probably seen the original, and so they really speed through early stuff. That that is true that they speed through, but there's one there's like stuff that they cut that I never knew about that I thought was interesting, and two more of what I have an issue with is the tone of it. Mm-hmm. Brotherhood is very serious right from the start and the manga starts sort of like jokey and is like building up to more serious it's i i think it's most emblematic you know the chimera thing that's in the o3 anime people are like oh my gosh the 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 chimera thing it's so sad it's the saddest thing ever I, i definitely used to feel that way and um like in brotherhood it's incredibly sad it's like a very sad thing in the manga it's not a joke, but it is like in volume one, Arakawa is like, oh, I'm doing like B movie horror stuff. Yeah. And it's like, oh, that's what the Chimera stuff is. It's just like schlocky B movie, the fly, uh-huh. you know? Um, okay. Number six after Fullmetal Alchemist, um, Spy Family. It's fucking great. It's fucking so good. You'd really enjoy Spy Family. Yeah. It's not that deep, you know? Yeah. And then uh, number seven, still really enjoyable, uh, Chainsaw Man. Just a good fight manga. Yeah. A fair number of these I have either on my tablet to read or um, 
from the the library mm-hmm. they have some stuff and so i have i have the first volume of which had to tell you but i'll probably just borrow them from you yeah somewhere. i've got the first five all in physical yeah um and then what else i got uh the ancient magus bride i haven't read it oh yeah i want to read that and then I got the first volume of uh, Spy Family, mm-hmm. and then I don't remember what the other one was I got. Yeah. It was just one where I was like, I was thinking about reading that. I guess I'll get it. Um, yeah, I'm just enjoying my little manga corner. Um, I downloaded some Western comics, and then I just didn't even read them. You know, as I am wont to do, as yeah. I am constantly doing. Um. Well, let's get into the movies. Yeah, you have this first one, which is a a very short one. Yep. You even talked about these stairs. Yes. On Pop Down Funk. Yes. For Pop Down Funk, we just watched Sleeping Beauty, which is a great fucking movie. Oh my word, that movie's good. Um, that's not correct. No, that is not, not what you said. The <laughs> fact that I hadn't changed the the date for Sleeping it's Beauty. It's nineteen fifty nine. Okay. Um. <clears throat> yeah, you had Sleeping Beauty 2016, which might also be a movie that came out. For all I know, yeah, <laughs> probably a lot worse. Um. Yeah, really liked that movie. Um. Go if you give us five dollars a month at exportodd.io. You can listen to Pop Town Funk, where Nora and I talk about that. Um. And on the episode, uh, I think I say I gave it an S for stairs. Um. Stairs in that movie fucking rule. They're fucking good. Yeah. If you want more information about them, go listen to Pop Town Funk. It's the first time we've ever said to find out more about the stairs. <laughs> listen, pay five dollars. Um, you talk about your movie. Um, so I watched you know, the Neon Demon real quick. What? So Molly, over at Totally Reprise, you can go to AudioEntropy.com and find totally reprise and they've been covering um the david lynch movies and twin or they've been covering just twin peaks twin peaks not david lynch movies but they took a quick detour to um watch mulholland drive before they start the return and um they or molly i was about to say they as a podcast just molly (laughs) listens to um the ornate stairwells about mulholland drive and so i re-listened to it as well um, and it's really funny because at the start you're like, oh yeah, I watched one movie a week or two ago. It's so funny how at the start of this podcast, we're like, oh, we could talk about a movie we watch. This is how we got <laughs> to talking about like 10 movies that we watched in yeah. the last week is because we didn't start doing 10 movies. We started no. doing zero or one. Yes. Then it became two. Then it became like four or five. Yes. Then it became like seven. Yeah. Then it became all I did this week was watch movies. Yes. Yeah. These things happen. But I had a rough week, so you only get one this time. <laughs> and it's The Neon Demon. Yeah. By Nicholas Winding Refn or however you... I don't know if it's Winding Refn or what. I always heard Nicholas Winding Refn, but I don't know that I've ever heard that from him. I think I've just heard that. Yeah. So, um, did you know that Ruffin means, uh, Raven? I did not. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I watched this because in general, I enjoy his movies. Um, I like Drive. Me too. I liked Only God Forgives. I haven't watched some of his early stuff. 
Um, Pusher's all right. <clears throat> yeah. Um, Bronson's really good. And I know a lot of people who don't like the Neon Demon. I also know that like the swim fans boys all think it's a five star movie. I don't think it was a five star movie, but I think the thing that a lot of people who uh, watch his movies and then have opinions on them miss is that he's kind of just doing like this kind of movie used to just exist as yeah. a like kind of budget movie. And he is just like getting the leeway to make a movie like this in 2016. Yeah. And it means that he has to do a certain kind of polish that's expected from Hollywood now or whatever, you know, they, they want it to have this like certain aesthetic and veneer. And I think he does, right. he does that. He wants it to. Yeah. But also like this movie is in no way like all that different from shit. You'd get a blockbuster. Yeah. And pe- people compare this to like Suspiria, mm. which I think makes sense. But people will be like, well, Suspiria, like, you know, this one also has all these aesthetics, but it's like played out. But it's like, if you're watching Giallo, Suspiria's fucking played out. Yeah. It's because the only Giallo you've ever fucking watched is Suspiria. And so you think, wow, what a revelation. And it's like, <laughs> no, this is the entire fucking genre. Yeah. So, of course, it looks like all the fucking movies coming out right now. Because Suspiria looks like all the fucking movies that were coming out of Italy in that, like, yeah, yellow film. Yeah. You know? Um, like I love V cinema stuff and it's because I've watched so much of it. Some people will watch V cinema and be like, wow, that's it's just like, no, like that's just what those fucking movies are. Yeah. You want, I watch lane now we're, we're doing the lane episodes. They haven't started coming out. But like when I watched lane the first time I hadn't watched a bunch of V cinema. And so I was like, whoa, this is doing shit. And now I've just seen like experimental Japanese films and V cinema. And I'm like, oh yeah, it's one of these. It's good. I love mm-hmm. it, but like you just need the frame of reference. Yeah, and people have the frame of reference for what Winding Raven is doing. Yeah, but they don't understand that they don't have it for like Suspiria or whatever. Yeah, and so they make that comparison, and they're like, and then also this is just like evil, whereas Suspiria has something to say, and it's like no fucking no. no they're doesn't. both about how women destroy them like each other for like you know popularity or whatever yeah this is what both of these movies the plot of this movie <laughs> just to briefly explain it suspiria is kind of a women be shopping movie <laughs> so uh l- let me see if you're you're familiar with this kind of plot okay right? so uh a young woman comes to hollywood okay you i think you already have the entire yes movie i, have, I have seen the entire movie now <laughs> yes um and then Hollywood, it just eats her alive. No. And then spoilers for the Neon Demon, like skip, do the like skip ahead. I'm going to say now and then you'll do it. So like get ready, get ready to press. When I say now, push it. Okay. I'm, I'll do a countdown as well. <laughs> Three, two, one, now. Literally, they literally eat her alive. <laughs> it's, it's just a schlocky horror movie it just has the the like the veneer the slick veneer oh my god that's so good that's fucking incredible it is i should watch it's, this movie it's so obvious on the face of it what this movie is about yeah there's no subtlety to it because 
There's no subtlety to Suspiria about what it's fucking about. There's no, there's no subtlety. The man comes and explains to you about, like, evil. <laughs> there's no subtlety to, like, any of the Nicholas Winding Refn movies I like. Like, Bronson, great movie, not subtle. Drive, great movie, not subtle. <laughs> yeah. He just do, he just does genre stuff. Yeah. And that's what I like about it, is because yeah. he's one of the only people who's still allowed to do this kind of genre stuff. Yeah. Where it's just like, this is just a fun horror movie. Yeah. It's just a fun 2016 horror movie that's schlocky and you're going to have weird gore and like eyeballs and shit. You saw the, you saw the, um, you saw the thing that Jordan Peele was all like, uh, put the phone down. I don't think I actually, I saw people talking about it, but I didn't seek it out because I was extremely busy. There is, so there was a guy on Twitter this week who said, <laughs> it's so stupid. Um, can we just all admit that Jordan Peele is now the greatest horror director of all time? What other horror director has ever put out three good movies, let alone three good movies in a row? And obviously <laughs> Twitter had a fit. <laughs> Jordan Peele himself tweeted at the man, sir, please put the phone down. <laughs> um, it's just... <laughs> but yeah. People just don't think genre movies uh, were are worth paying attention to, I guess? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what compels one to tweet things like, there, haven't, there hasn't been a director who made three good horror movies in a row. Um, I don't know why people think that, like, oh, genre movies are inherently lesser, you know? Yeah. But they do, and it's stupid. Or, like, they need to have all this veneer of, like, being really smart. Yeah. For people to take them seriously. Yeah. And enjoy them, or else they're like, oh, this was such a bad, dumb movie. Unlike this other bad, dumb movie, but it is from a different cultural time and, com like, uh, context. Okay. <clears throat> or cultural context and time that I just, like, don't have the reference point. So I watch that, and I'm like, wow, they're really doing shit. And it's like, no, they're not. It's just fun. It's just a fun horror movie. Get Out's a really good movie. I really like Get Out. That's the only one of his I've seen. I would like to see Us and Nope. Um, I remember when people on Twitter were losing their shit about how there's the scene, spoilers for Get Out, I guess. Uh, if you haven't seen Get Out, what have you been doing for the last five years? <laughs> yeah. Um, there's the scene where Daniel uh, Kaluuya's character is in the chair and the way that he ends up escaping is that he's, like, picking the cotton out of the chair. And I remember people doing Twitter threads about, like, oh, he's picking cotton, like, blah, blah, blah. Like, oh, this is so deep. And I I don't know this, but I'm certain that, like, uh, Jordan Peele was writing that in the script and was like, ha, this is a good one. This is funny. <laughs> <laughs> or, like, the, the one I know, the one I know is... um. Like, there's the woman in that movie who eats her, like, cereal and her milk separate. Like, yeah. she eats cereal and then will have a sip of milk. And people were doing all this, like, oh, it's about, like, segregation, blah, blah, blah. And Jordan Peele just did some interview. He's like, no, I just thought that was a weird thing that a person could do. <laughs> I had a roommate who did that. And it was kind of weird. It's psycho behavior. <laughs> Oh, and then sometimes they'd be like, oh, I don't like that cereal because it's, like, too hard and it hurts my mouth when I eat it. And I'm like, it's because you're supposed to put fucker. fucking water on, milk on it. 
It's so that it doesn't just turn to mush. They made it that way so that it'll have some texture after it's been soaking in milk. Because it's designed for milk to be poured on it. I I had a Although cousin. The, he said this, but then he would take mini wheats and... <laughs> this this was the wild because some of the other ones I could like it's fine he would like take a like spoonful of the cereal and then drink some milk I could you know? like I could understand that with Cheerios or whatever Cheerios yes. would have like a perfectly acceptable texture but, drive. so he would pick out of the bowl one piece of mini shredded mini oh uh, no orient it so that if you're like holding it in your hand in front of you uh, so you have like your thumb and your your uh, index finger right. Um, and you're holding it so that the frosting is facing towards you, like looking towards you and you kind of have like your palm towards you. Yeah. And then open in the mouth and place the frosting right on the tongue, like that side. (laughs) It had to be that side. And then pull in, not chew or anything, drink the milk. Oh my God. And then start chewing. (laughs) Mix it like live in the mouth. (laughs) Anyway. I had so I watched Get Out, and I was like, yeah, that's kind of sicko behavior. <laughs> I had a cousin who used to always insist that serving milk over ice. He would he would put ice in the glass and then pour milk over it. And for years, I thought this was psycho behavior. And then I got a job where I make lattes all day, and I realized I'm... I, yeah, I, you said <laughs> it, and I was like... And then I and then I just thought about like making Emily an ice latte in the morning, and I was like, hmm? <laughs> I okay. guess I don't know why the coffee just changes the arithmetic in my head where yeah, the no, ice is fine. Same, now. same, <laughs> same. Because like I had, there's a guy who comes into work, and in the summer, or in the summer, he likes. He always just gets milk. He doesn't like coffee. And so in the winter, he gets steamed milk. And in the summer, he gets milk over ice as well. And it's the same thing where I like, I'll make an iced latte. And with one little measly shot of espresso, totally normal thing to drink. But without that shot of espresso, I'm like, you are going to hell when you die. <laughs> How are the stairs in Neon Demon? Um. Anyway, it's fun. The one other thing I'll say about Neon, Neon Demon before I do the stairs. Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, is what I really like about it, though, like, I like the main character. And that, so you know how you'll watch an anime, and it'll kind of be like a harem style where there's, like, multiple girls. But it's really clear that just everyone involved likes one girl anyways. And so she's, like, very clearly selected to be, like, the waifu of the show, Mm -hmm. even though there are other girls. And then all the other girls are constantly comparing themselves to the, the, like, designated waifu character. Yeah. And it's always just like, oh, she has, like, the best boobs and everyone's other's boobs are, like, too Mm -hmm. small or whatever or too big or whatever. Yeah. You know, like, all their characteristics, many of them physical are compared to this woman but also like oh she's the bravest or whatever whatever the right, show yeah. thinks yeah. the ideal woman is yeah this is the main character of neon demon is she's the perfect anime waifu and most of it is about how much that fucking sucks to be that person <laughs> it just sucks to be that person uh-huh um it's really great where like there's just long sequences of how terrible it is for people to constantly view you as this like perfect uh, perfection 
mm. of like the feminine ideal, uh-huh. and not just as a human being who's like trying to exist. Yeah. Um. And then I'm gonna do the countdown again. Uh. So get ready to skip. You ready? Three, two, one. Now, the eater. <laughs> they just have blood all over. And one of them is a lesbian, and she's just laying in a bath full of like bloody water with like blood all over, watching the other two ones covered in blood showering. And I was just like, this is what I want from a horror movie. It's just people covered in blood naked. This is what you want from one of the erotic movies you watch. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, anyway. Sorry to put you on blast on the show, but you know. <laughs> I feel like there are a couple other stairs, but the main stairs that I think about is there's multiple ones going up and down. Um, it's just like those like outdoor metal kind of stairs in like an outdoor motel that exists in California. You know, those style. Uh-huh. Um, and so she goes up to her room multiple times. There's some scenes that happen on the stairs, things like that. Yeah. But like, it's not that significant and... I don't think there are some times where there could be some really great ornate stairs in this movie, and I don't remember them ever being used. So I'm going to do like a, a C minus, maybe. Sure. You know, there's still like some usage of that, but like you, you could have brought in some really ornate stairs in here. Yeah. Um. Anyway, tell me about this movie by Robert Wise. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I watched 1979's. Star Trek, the motion picture. Um, have you seen this movie? Yeah. I've I, seen... I figured. I just wanted to check. I've seen all of the Star Trek movies, except I've only seen one of the, like, new ones, mm-hmm. you know? That did... was, like, a reboot of the original series, basically. How do you like the motion picture? Um, it's been a long time since you've seen it's it? It's been a long time. I remember... This is the thing that my dad... Because this is... Star Trek is one of the things that... Um, we had been watching the show, and then there's a point where my dad was like, oh, in the same way that he does this with, like, he did this with James Bond and everything, is, like, we're going to just, like, literally go to the, the video store, and we're going to rent every single, mm-hmm. you know, not all in one week, but, like, very rapid succession. We're going to rent multiple, watch them this week. Next week, we're going to watch more. Um, and did that with the, the Star Trek movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't even remember how many there are. But uh, the thing he said to me, and at the time I agreed, but I was young and I would not fully trust my opinion anymore, is uh, I believe it was because Wrath of Khan is the second one, right? Yes. Yeah. So he said, all the odd number ones are bad. All the even number ones are good. I have long heard this, like, wisdom. Yeah. Um, and I feel like if I went now and watched, like, I would f- I would enjoy other things in the the odd number ones, and I'd probably still enjoy parts of them. But yeah, as a kid, I just kind of this is what was told to me, and I I believed it because yeah. Wrath of Khan is so much fucking better than. Yeah, uh, I really like Star Trek: The Motion Picture. It ain't Wrath of Khan. Yeah, <laughs> but what's the one where they time travel? Do you know this one? No. They like go back uh, to might... the seventies or something. That might be Star Trek Four. Okay, well, so. If that one is also yes. an even numbered one, yes, then yeah, I would have just fully like believed because it's... we would be four in, and I'd be like, the two big ones that I still remember to this day are Wrath of Khan and they time travel back to the seventies or whatever. It's, um, the motion picture Wrath of Khan, the search for Spock, the journey home, the voyage home, the voyage home, and then undiscovered country, and then the final frontier. Yeah. The Voyage Home was fucking fun. 
<laughs> I mean, yeah, I'm excited to get to the rest of these. I'm gonna rewatch Wrath of Khan because it's been a couple years, and I'm just gonna God. keep plugging away. Man, Wrath of Khan. I should rewatch Wrath of Khan. <laughs> Not my copy of it because my copy of it is a Betamax that I can't watch. Oh, but... oh well, damn. <laughs> Because if you could watch the Betamax, I would tell you you should watch the Betamax just for the hell of it. I do still kind of just want to, like, acquire a Betamax player at some point. Yeah. But what if I do after all these years and I put in that Betamax and, it and it's work. fucking, like, shot to hell? Yeah. I wouldn't be shocked. Or it's just in itself? Yeah. Yeah. So... <clears throat> Did I ever, before you finish this, did I ever tell you how, uh, so I, the first time I saw Sonatini was in theaters. I think I saw it twice while it was in. Oh, wow. It was at, um, the Gene Siskel Center. Oh, nice. Um, and then the only copy of it I could find is that the public library, I don't even know if they still have this Betamax, but at the time I worked at the, um, video archive, Mm -hmm. um, and so I got it from the library, digitized it at the archive. And most of the times that I've watched it, it has been a digitized version of the Betamax copy at the Chicago Public Library of Sonatine. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> I've seen that movie on Betamax, technically, more than any other format. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just going to always watch that, like, huge gigabyte... Yeah. Yeah, just full Blu-ray quality one, but... Yeah. Um. So yeah. Um. I had always heard that this movie is bad. Um. I had always heard that this movie is boring. Um. People who say this movie is are people who say this movie is boring are correct. This movie is boring as hell. That does not, however, mean that the movie is bad. The movie fucking rocks. <laughs> this movie fucking rules it's 25 minutes before someone speaks english in this fucking movie because yeah. <laughs> the 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 opening awesome. credits okay i hit play on the file and i don't know how this plays when you're watching a movie in a theater necessarily but i hit play on the file and there's like a solid three minutes of just score and stars happening. That's it. Like, there's no, you know, Star Trek The Motion Picture starring William Shatner. That shows up like three minutes in and it's still just stars and and music happening. Yeah. <laughs> and there's all sorts of like really long, like, uh, like the, the, the moment that really hit me was like, um, Kirk and Scotty are on a shuttle going up from San Francisco to the Enterprise, and they're talking, and then once the Enterprise comes into view, they're just silent, and you get them silently, slowly, as the score plays the big iconic Star Trek song, um, you get them silently, slowly approaching the Enterprise and just appreciating the majesty of like human ingenuity and this beautiful thing and all the memories they've shared on the Enterprise, all of these things, all of this, like, and like, <clears throat> I understand in 1979, if you're just a person who's been watching Star Trek in syndication, or if you go to the video store in, you know, 1992, and you pick this movie up because it says Star Trek, I understand that you're like, why is this movie so boring? Like, 
why is this movie like this? I hate this. But me knowing before that I turned it on how it is a how it has this reputation for slowness, I was able to like what is the slowness like invoking in me? And like, you know, it's like, oh, I'm supposed to appreciate the sort of like majesty of the thing that is on screen right now. That is like the thing that it is constantly going for is like look at this sort of like feat of technology or or like, you know, look at this thing that humans built or look at this thing that was out there in space that we didn't know about all these sorts of things, you know? Yeah. I really had a great time with this movie. Um, also, you know, Kirk, Spock and McCoy are just a blast. They're just really good in this movie. <laughs> there was a letterboxd. I re- there was a letterbox review that I read that had a like line that has wiggled its way into my brain. And I'm never going to get it out now, which is that McCoy shows up in this movie looking like the guy who invented cocaine. <laughs> um, it's great. They drafted me. <laughs> um, so yeah. Uh, are you gonna tell me about the stairs in the USS Enterprise? Well, so here's the thing. Um, um, I wanted to give this movie a C for stairs. Um, one of the other great things about this movie is like the model work is just like watching, you know, the Klingon ships or the, you know, the Enterprise or any number of things, like all these beautiful, beautiful models that they built. Um, and they're just like photographing them so well. And <clears throat> when, so you get a scene down on earth in San Francisco at like Starfleet headquarters of like Admiral Kirk, he's going to go have an, a meeting with Admiral Nagura and he's going to go board the Enterprise after this meeting. And in this scene in Starfleet headquarters, there is a there is a perfectly acceptable shot of stairs. There is a conversation that Kirk has with some ensign on the stairs. Um, it's just like it's nothing special. The stairs look nice, but they don't look too flashy. Like the scene is of some consequence, but not super duper much. I wanted to give them a C because like. It is hard to find ways to put stairs into Star Trek, and they did it. They 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 did something, and I wanted to recognize that. So C, yeah. you know. I was looking up. Is is this one of the like? They're, that's what the Klingons look in this look like yeah. in this one, which I think is like a weird like halfway point between what they end up looking like in TNG and what they looked like in TOS. Yeah, because TOS is like. I mean, they like you've heard about the whole canon explanation or whatever. No. Um. So there's a there's a canon explanation that there is like some disease or something that Klingons oh, used yes. to have two different appearances. Yes. Okay. And there was like some disease that like I forget if it killed ones who looked one way or it like changed how they looked or what. Huh. Yeah. Okay. This it it comes up and it the main reason why I know it is because um. My favorite Star Trek when I was a kid, which I don't know if this would be true anymore, but I haven't like fully watched through all of them, but was Deep Space Nine. It's the one that I remembered the most of, and mm-hmm. it was a while ago now, but it was like maybe five years ago. Emily and I watched through all of Deep Space Nine. Um, there's an episode where they time travel back to 
um, I think the Trouble with the Tribbles episode huh. of Star Trek, the original series. And so it's a lot of fun shots of the original series and then them like doing camera work and sometimes like composite shots and things to put members of Deep Space Nine on the ship in some of those scenes. That's but then they're doing stuff in the like back that's, you know, its own little plot. Um, And there's a part where um, I think it's Worf is there and is like explained because everyone's like why do all the Klingons look like that <laughs> and like explains or whatever and so I I vaguely remember that but I know there's like more to that canon Pardon? explanation <clears throat> I am excited it's gonna take me like months you know like I'm gonna I know that <clears throat> Deep Space Nine starts midway through TNG I think my plan is I'm just gonna finish TNG and then do Deep Space Nine yeah. um, I'm not gonna like alternate between them or anything like that i'm probably just gonna do one then the next part of the reason i am really excited to get to deep space nine one of these days is that i know that like a couple seasons in maybe wharf because like jumps from being main cast on tng to being main cast on deep space nine i'm like this is great because wharf is like my favorite guy on the enterprise right now and he does not get enough screen time like once or twice a season, they do the Wharf episode. I want the Wharf show. I want him to be captain of the Enterprise. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I think a a big thing for me mm-hmm. with when I think of it, like, and the memories that I have of Star Trek as a kid, and then having rewatched it, is Picard is fucking great, mm-hmm. but like. Benjamin Sisko is just my guy, and he's he's different than like a captain because he's yeah you know it takes place on like a uh, a space station yeah space station and not on a ship yeah part of that's also fun because it just means that there's just like more civilians and shit around yeah I think that's part of what becomes fun at least for me about Deep Space Nine and again all of this I could rewatch it and be like no I love that other series more but mm-hmm. but the other thing is that I just fucking love Cisco. I love Avery Brooks. He mm-hmm. he brings a lot to the role. Um apparently had a, a decent amount of effect on some of the episodes. Um nice. and so yeah, it's kind of just it's fun seeing him. Um also the stuff with uh Bashir and then um I'm trying to remember the name of um they're not going to like have it in here for me. Um, there's a just drawing a blank. Cause I think he's more of a minor character, but I like, I'm wondering if they're even going to have it in here. Um, it's like one of the big ships from one of the big gay ships from oh. space nine. Um, he's the like potential spy. Garrick. Garrick. Mm. Um, yeah. It's just like some of the interactions with Bashir and Garrick. Great. Even though I kind of otherwise hate Bashir. <laughs> also, Jadzia Dax is great. Um, and like, even at the time, had like weird trans theories around her in the queer community. Because <laughs> do you know the thing about Dax. No. So she's part of this like alien race that has a, a symbiotic host. And so the first name is like the name of the 
like you are the host and then you have the symbiotic being who's like a part of you. Mm-hmm. And so Dax is the symbiotic beauty uh, being Jadzia is the like current body, but mm-hmm. the, the previous body for Jadzia Dax for uh... Dax was male. Ah, okay. And so there's even a scene where, like, an old friend of Dax shows up and says whatever the old name used to be, and is like, oh, it's Jadzia now. And it's like, oh, Jadzia. Like, you know. Okay. Uh, okay. So, yeah. I see how you get there. You can you can find, like, old, like, transvestite magazines that are talking about Jadzia <laughs> Dax. So. Um, That's fun. Yeah. But. Um, how did we get to an really hour without I even. <laughs> I've I've just been. I've been having a really rough week, yeah. and the way that I deal with that is we hit play, uh huh, and then I just like start performing. Yeah, people will find that the episodes where I am just the most over the top, uh huh, are weeks where I've been really low. And right before we hit record, I'm just like, uh... right before we hit record, I was about to fall the fuck asleep. Yeah, <laughs> and then I just like amp myself up and do yeah. my little performance. Yeah, for you all, I'm doing a little dance. <laughs> <laughs> a Dear quiet podcast girl listener. who plays a loud girl on podcasts. That's me. <laughs> um, so shall we get to our main feature? Face off. I want to take his face off. off. <laughs> um, I did the hand motions so many times when we watched this. So many times. We could not help ourselves. You were doing it more than I was. I want to look up real quick before we get into it. Is this John Woo's first American movie? I don't think it is, but I want to look up like um, the arc of his career. Yeah, I mean, um, I guess I should have done. I guess this is John a science Woo. fiction film. <laughs> I guess yeah. if you think about it, this is a science fiction film. Um, okay, better tomorrow. The killer. Okay, Hard Target is his first American movie. Yeah. Okay, that's what I thought. I couldn't remember. So, <clears throat> Face Off. It's a John Woo movie from 1997, 1997 um, starring John Travolta and Nicolas Cage. Um, his third American movie. Um, probably the most beloved of his American movies. Um, I, I mean, have there's to... also Mission Impossible 2. Uh, I thought people didn't like that one as much. I, I still feel like people, there's a certain love for that. Oh, yeah. Maybe. I mean, Face Off might, if you're like into John Woo, I feel like it's Face Off. Yeah. John Woo, or not John Woo, I meant to say Face Off, um, I, having not seen any of his other American films, Face Off feels so of a piece to me with his uh, movies from Hong Kong that like, I understand if you're a John Woo head, you're like, oh, maybe, maybe. Like, that's the one that got it right. The others, like, they sanded him down or something. But Face Off, like, got the essence of John Woo. Um, we had a blast watching this movie. Yeah. Um, it's stupid. It's way too long. It yeah. does not have any reason to be two hours and 16 minutes. But neither does Hard Boiled. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, and Nicolas Cage and John Travolta are just delightful in this movie. If you've not yeah. seen this movie, I'm going to give you a very quick summary. Are we going to do a five sentence? Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sentence one. Um, <clears throat> John Travolta's character is an FBI agent who has been hunting down um, Nicolas Cage's character ever since Nicolas Cage killed his son. Sentence two. 
They take him in, but they need information from his brother, and so they have this idea that they're going to swap... They're going to put Nicolas Cage's face on John Travolta's so that John Travolta can infiltrate a prison and, and get this information from Nicolas Cage's brother. And so, they also have to take John Travolta's face off, off and put it into, like, storage. Yes. Some liquid. Sentence three. Also, just to... There's a way that you could edit sentence two to get this in there, but I just think it's important now. Yeah. Is that um, they, they think that, like... Uh, Cage's character is like brain dead because he's in a coma. Yes, yes. But now sentence three. He wakes up and he um, does his criminal mastermind stuff and ends up getting the surgeon um, to put John Travolta's face on him. And then he kills all the FBI agents and doctors that know about this whole scheme. And so now he is able to fully like enter John Travolta's life, basically. Yeah. Sentence four. Many subplots happen for a long time that don't matter. What does matter is that... They all do come together at the end, but did you need all of them to come together at the end? (laughs) Yeah, so sentence four. There are many subplots that happen. The only thing that actually matters is that John Travolta's character, now played by Nicolas Cage. This would be easier if I was using their names, but I don't remember their names. <laughs> so, so the FBI agent who was, you know, posing as Nicolas Cage, who is in prison, gets out of prison. Meanwhile, um, the the criminal who is posing as the FBI agent is trying to get more involved in his life of crime. Um, is trying to bring crime into his FBI lifestyle. Sentence five. Many guns are fired on many In a different church, vehicles. Wild doves fly. <laughs> yeah. Um, lots of action things happen. Eventually, the good guy saves the day and he gets his face back. Also, he adopts the other guy's son. Don't worry about that part. <laughs> Yeah, so the other thing is, um, on one hand, this is a movie about uh, an FBI agent who trades faces with a terrorist. Yes, that's the fun part of the movie. Um, And there's a bunch of action scenes around it, including an extremely long chase, but that's pretty much fun the entire time. You know... You know when you watch Hard Boiled and you're like, oh, I really like all these bits with Tony Lung and Chow Yun-Fat being like, oh, is it really that different being a cop and a criminal? And then there's also bits in Hard Boiled where Chow Yun-Fat is taking care of a baby and you can never really remember why that baby (laughs) is involved in this whole movie. That's what all the subplots feel like. (laughs) Yeah. So all the subplots are basically about this movie's about being a dad. Yes. But in a way that it's completely unrelated to this movie is about two men trading faces, one a FBI agent, one a terrorist. Like except, not in any way related. Except in that the trading of the faces allows for like the endangering and also the like seeing the other family stuff. Mm-hmm. Cause part of what comes up with the, the B like all the subplots that are happening during the space trading thing is, um, Nicholas cage as John Travolta mm-hmm. 
the criminal as the FBI agent mm-hmm. is seemingly just eventually deciding to be because it starts out with there's this whole subplot with the the daughter yes who is like a teen daughter and you know very at the very beginning gets introduced of like oh she's always wearing these revealing clothes and like doing all these like you know quote unquote slutty makeup and stuff uh-huh. um and so you see all that and when you know the premise of this movie and you see the very first scene you're like Oh no! Yeah, that criminal is going to try and do some shit to that dog. Yes, yes. And it starts with this that movie. Vibe. I had not seen this movie. The moment the daughter is introduced, I was like, "Oh no, Nicolas Cage is going to become her dad and try to fuck her." Yes, <laughs> which is what happens. Kinda, mostly. Yeah. Sort of. The thing is, so we're. I've seen this movie before. It's been a while. Yeah. There's that first scene with the makeup and she turns and there's the reveal. And while it's happening, I'm like, I thought this was a whole different fucking movie. I remember this scene, (laughs) but I don't remember how it relates to this plot and how it plays out. (laughs) I don't remember the ending of this subplot because when I think of face off, I don't think of this shit. No. (laughs) Um, But so it starts with that vibe that the criminal wants to fuck the daughter in the body of her dad. Uh Uh-huh. Then he just kind of like, as it progresses, just decides to be her dad. Yeah, it's in a weird way where like, where like, with the wife, he is like playing up trying to be a good husband, but in this way where he's like very intentionally trying to cuck. Yes, John Travolta. Uh huh. The real John, the real FBI agent John Travolta. Yes. Again, the fact that we're not using these characters' names is just making... I remembered it's Archer and Troy. Yeah. Archer being the FBI agent, Troy being the... um, The criminal. The criminal. So, the Archer... So, Troy is Archer. Yes. Is very clearly... Is is not trying to be a good husband, is just trying to cuck. Yes. The actual Archer. Yes. Is just trying to cuck the actual FBI agent. Yes. With the daughter, though, he just seems to decide to be her dad. Yeah. He's in like, ways where he's like, I'm going to do what I would do to, like, take care of a daughter, where I'm going to be like, oh, if any guy tries to try anything with you, just, like, give him the this, like, butterfly knife in the thigh and make sure to twist it so that it won't, like, heal right. Yeah. You know? He'll just keep bleeding. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's just, like... And not all of that, but then at the very end when it all unravels, then he's like, ah, ha, ha, I'm going to lick her, blah, 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 I'm going to be all, you know, uh, sexually menacing to her in front of you. And then, of course, he was a dad to her earlier and gave her a fucking butterfly knife, so she stabs him with the butterfly knife in the thigh and then twists it. It's great. Here's the problem with Face Off. We do a podcast about um, films... (laughs) are a series of moving images, you know, Mm -hmm. or is this, you know, we like to talk about aesthetics. We like to talk about like experiences and having fun watching things. Face off provides that in spades. It is so much fun to watch face. off. Yes. However, when I'm doing a podcast, I really, the thing that is easiest to talk about with face off is about how stupid the plot is. So, so Troy is the bad guy because he has a bomb and he's he wants to blow up L.A. Like he he literally has a comic book supervillain. Mwahaha! I'm going to blow up 
Los Angeles. And and Archer is a good guy because he's an FBI agent. But also, the real, like, subtext reason that Troy is a bad guy is that he is promiscuous and he doesn't, um... He has his, like, main girlfriend who has his son, but he doesn't really accept responsibility of being a parent. And the real reason that Archer is the good guy is because he is like a good old American father who yeah. raises a nice who, nuclear family who and fucks a his wife home. exactly once every three months <laughs> <laughs> on a Sunday after church. Missionary. Yes. They go to church. They go to the Chinese restaurant after, like they always do. Yes. They have a big meal. And then it's the one Sunday where he then gives some money to the daughter and says, you go, go take you and your brother. And then the brother's dead, but because <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to give your, your wife one good fucking, he doesn't say that part. He doesn't say it, but the reason why is I'm going to give your wife, I'm going to give my wife one good fucking. The, the, the fundamental conflict of this movie is that in the first scene, Troy tears apart this beautiful heterosexual family by killing the son. And, yes. And in the in the final scene, good order is restored by taking that guy's son and just being like, yes. he's ours now. <laughs> <laughs> Don't worry about where he came from. That's because, our son. Because I went... <laughs> I, w- I was pretending to be him so that I could get my life back. And so I obviously had to, like, enlist the other people. Uh-huh. And in the process, met his son and the the mom and decided to take care of them. Because even in that situation, I have to be a good dad. Yes. It's who I am as a person. Yes. Is a good dad. Yes. Uh, uh, a not great but steady husband and a good dad. <laughs> good will always triumph over evil, and good just happens to be classic American values. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the funniest part about it, though, is how, like, in her diary that Troy reads when he gets the, the wife's diary, mm-hmm. it's, like, about how he doesn't really listen to her, uh, doesn't fuck her more than that once. Once it's, the once every quarter. It's once really every funny. fiscal quarter. <laughs> it's really funny because the diary is like four sentences about how he doesn't listen. He's never at home. When I try to tell him things, he doesn't feel present in my life. Also, he doesn't fuck me enough. And both Archer and Troy are like, well, clearly the problem is that I'm not fucking her. Don't really resolve the issue where he's not present or listening. Yes. Do resolve the dicking down issue. (laughs) Yes. Troy really does resolve that. (laughs) It's funny, too, because we were watching it and you were like, she doesn't recognize that the dick is different because the way that this works is that they like literally take the face off. You get a few good shots of like seeing the, there's one in particular where it's the reflection in the glasses Mm -hmm. where uh, Troy is awoken from his coma and doesn't have the face and is like, give me his face or whatever. And it's the reflection of the doctor's glasses is one of the great 
shots yeah. of his face. It's so good. His like no face face. Yeah. Um, it's so. But good. they they literally like take the skin off and then they like will like do plastic surgery kind of stuff on the body too. Yeah. Um. So they like cover up the scar that Archer has. Mm-hmm. Um. They like take off his love handle, slim him down a little bit to a little bit more of a Nicolas Cage body type. But like, it's not like they're like swapping brains, like Ghost in the Shell, bring cases between no. no. And so the dick didn't change. Unless unless they did advanced surgical... (laughs) Unless this plastic surgeon knows some way and also felt it was necessary to make Troy and Archer's dicks identical. Or or to swap swap their dicks. (laughs) (laughs) They took his dick off. (laughs) Which raises the question. So in Troy posing as Archer goes to fuck his wife, does she never, ever, ever notice that he's got a different dick now? Because, not to get too blue, if Nora walked in one day and had a different person's penis, I'd notice pretty quick. (laughs) It would not take me much time. Yeah. But, so my argument in all of this, just, we're bringing you all along on this journey listeners uh my argument in all of this is one they don't fuck that often yeah two i don't think she goes down on him she's not given head yeah it is always so this is the thing is it's always i think lights off missionary yeah in which case like i guess yeah if you don't see it maybe you wouldn't you're like is that hidden different? Oh, uh, whatever. Probably just... Yeah. <laughs> it's been a while. Don't really remember. Is he coming? Anyway. Is he done yet? Am I done yet? <laughs> this movie is so stupid, but it's this fucking movie's... great. I'd love people this movie. watch it. If you have not watched it. Uh, the, reason that peop- the reason that you should watch this movie <laughs> is that um, in the first 13 minutes, a plane blows up. That's the reason you should watch this movie. And, like, we were just having a great time. We are always this person. We are always like this. That We were watching a movie, and we are like, man, remember when the... We talk a lot about how we hate green screen everything, you know? Because it, like, deadens a lot of actors' performances, and it makes everything just look worse. Um... One of the, and, it, uh, and it also, like, especially in, like, a lot of really, like, again, I'll very briefly bring up the MCU to, to do this, because yeah. it's one of the worst offenders, but it's, like, often they shoot it and they don't even know what the fucking background is going to be. Yeah. And it's just, like, you're not, like, having the actors have e- even any understanding of where they're going to be. Yeah. What the environment's going to be like. Yeah. Any interaction with that environment. Um, you're having to create environments that will fit with the, where the actors are and not the other way around. Mm -hmm. Like you're not having the actors fit within an environment, all that stuff. But also, also the other great thing about having a set is that then you can blow it up. Yeah. (laughs) It's fucking incredible. There's the, so there's the, uh, part where it's like his friends hide up, but they like know he's going to be there. That's like where his, um, where like the the girlfriend or whatever who has the son for Troy lives, uh-huh. 
But it's so clear that it's just like... It's just a warehouse. Yeah, it's just a... Like, it is just the warehouse where you build a set. And they just yeah. built a set where it's just like... There's just an elevated part with stairs going up. In a way that, like... I work in industrial supply. It's been a really long time since I've been into the, the building. But, like, uh, the warehouse, which is massive, mm. that I work at, is attached to the office. Yeah. And sometimes you go back to where the warehouses are. And there's, like, parts that have, like, shelving that's just got a bunch of little tiny parts all in like boxes and stuff and there's multiple levels for that and so it's just in the middle of a warehouse there's just like floors built that are basically just metal yeah right and there's just metal stairs that just go up to the other floors yeah and it's all just kind of open and it's not like in any way that would make sense for a home this is just where this guy lives and <laughs> the girlfriend who's like his girlfriend but also just his girlfriend yeah yeah <clears throat> And it like it doesn't make just... sense as a like even as like a weird terrorist villain, this doesn't make sense as a place to live. Also, they but do it terrorism does make... for hire. <laughs> yeah, but it does make sense as we're gonna then just completely destroy this entire set in a big shootout scene. We and they really do just destroy that entire fucking set. We don't talk enough about how John Woo ha- is maybe the only person. Who can compete with Jackie Chan for just hating glass? Motherfucker hates glass. So much glass breaks in this movie. <laughs> Not, there's just something about like police story with just the sheer amount of glass that I'm sure other movies have lots and lots of sugar glass destroyed. Yeah. But oh, it's just like I think the part of it is that you get to the big mall scene and there's just parts where they're like, there's no reason why that you needed to drive the motorcycle through all of that glass. <laughs> There's no, like, there's no explanation for the... It just at, happens because at least, you, it's just fun to watch Glass Break. At least in this movie, it makes sense because they're firing guns everywhere. And so you're like, yeah, guns break glass, you know. Yeah. If that shot goes astray, it's going to hit some glass, you know. Whereas, like, you generally don't hit glass when you're, like, punching, <laughs> you know. It's usually a thing that you there's avoid. A, there's an intentionality <laughs> to, my like... My fist got a little close. <laughs> I was smiling, punching. <laughs> There's the intentionality to the way that Jackie Chan breaks glass, whereas like John Woo is just like, ah, fuck that glass, whatever, who cares? Yeah. Um, in more in this movie, it more makes sense that glass is breaking when glass yeah. breaks. Whereas sometimes in Police Story, it's just like you just put a pane there so that you could break some more glass. <laughs> <laughs> whereas you haven't seen Police Story two, but Police Story two is. Uh, the continuation, Jackie Chan hates glass, loves explosions. <laughs> Police Story 2 is explosions. Uh, but there's some good explosions in this movie. Yeah, there's some fantastic explosions. Like I say, there was the plane blowing up at the start. <laughs> there's the the ramp, the speedboat ramp. Is that the one that... Oh my god, it's so good. Because the speedboat ramp, they blow up another bigger boat. Yeah, and he it's like so... ramps off of a bigger boat. Yes. And it makes the entire boat explode and clearly there is some fire happening yeah but they also just like layer in more fire and post in a really funny way yeah because they could not have it explode that much yes while someone's actually well also possibly think... on that or did they just launch one who knows Unmanned. i don't know do you, you think they just like put a brick down on the pedal and then jump over <laughs> do speedboats have pedals is that a thing i don't know I think the one time I drove a speedboat when I was young, it had like a handle thing, like a stick shift type thing. Can I tell you something? Never been in a speedboat. Yeah, I grew up poor. 
<laughs> Never been on a yacht. Um, I've been in a canoe. <laughs> Can I tell you a dumb story about being 15 real quick? Sure. So... <clears throat> This I is was, what this bike is. We were going to watch Hamlet, and we didn't. I'm still going to do a bit, but tell oh, me your story, yes. and then... So when I was 15, um, there was, I was with my church youth group one time, and my dad was irritated at me about something, and so I decided not to tell my dad that me and the church youth group were going out on a lake. I just told him, I'm going to go over to so-and-so's house to study or something. We hanging out on the lake. It's all good. We're getting out of the boat. I leave my car keys in the boat. My girlfriend at the time is in the boat. I'm on the dock. And I'm like, hey, just hand me the car keys. Car keys fall in the lake. Who has my spare keys? My dad, who doesn't know I'm at the lake. (laughs) So that was a bad time. (laughs) That's the end of that story. Uh, do you want me to do mine? Go. So, you know, Molly was listening to uh, the Mulholland Drive episode, which was like episode five. Yeah. You re-listened to it. You listened to some of our other early ones. I listened to the first five, and I told myself I was going to listen to all of them, because last time was episode 50, and I was like, oh, I'll, for episode 50, I'll go re-listen to all the stairwells. There was only so much of my own voice I could tolerate listening to. Yeah. <laughs> Fair. Um, but I was thinking... Because I fell off of this in part because we were... I was sometimes bringing in movies mm-hmm. that just weren't going to get this. I was looking it up and finding nothing interesting. Um, but then I was like, well, we're doing Hamlet. And a bit that I miss, that I used to do, is that I would read like articles from uh, Google Scholar that I would find. Mm-hmm. And I would kind of lightly roast some of them. Maybe I would point out some that sounded interesting. So, uh, I was thinking, oh, Hamlet, this would be a great time to do it. Instead, we did Face Off, so I'm gonna, I'm gonna read this one. Okay. The Bard is no longer what it used to be or not to be. Reinterpreting postmodern discourses in Baz Luhrmann's William Shakespeare's Romeo plus Juliet 1996 and Michael Amoreta's Hamlet 2000. Being true to Shakespeare constitutes a highly fallacious consideration in our postmodern cosmovision, as the notion of the text itself is no longer a stable category, but a space where a wide range of writings intermingle and blend. Thus, both Baz Luhrmann and Michael Almereda deauthorize Shakespeare and appropriate the Bard's text, Romeo and Juliet, Hamlet, in order to construct postmodern, multifaceted, multifaceted products that fuse contemporary cinematic devices with the editorial intention of transposing the adapted work's universality in order to be understood and digested by the postpopular and glocalized 20th century culture. I'm just posting. 21st century culture. Blas... 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 Blas Lerman. Yeah, I'm just posting yeah. that real quick. Sorry. Um, um, anyway, I still just had to read this one. I don't know if we're going to glo- do Hamlet. Glocalized. Yeah. Um, this is by uh, Manuel Casas uh, Guijara. Mm-hmm. They do this... Guijaro, yeah. Yeah, I probably needed to roll the R. I needed to do the Icelandic. Well, you you inserted a double L where there is none, is the other thing. Wait, where? You said Guijaro, and there's just Guijaro. Okay. You were mostly right, though. Um... 
Yeah, I still... This one is so bad. This is one of the most ridiculous ones I've ever seen. Postmodern Cosmovision. The notion of the text itself is no longer a stable, solid category. I don't know. I think text is pretty easy. Face-off is face-off. Face-off is not other movies. But so, the thing is that this is so steeped in, like, I'm a grad student or a postdoc or whatever. Yeah. And all I'm doing is hanging out with other people who are also just, like, in fucking academia. And we just talk in a way that human beings don't. And some people are, like, able to, like, filter that and understand that. And some people just go in. And this person's going in in a way where they think they're being cheeky and fun. Like, the part where I just, like, absolutely lost it the first time I read this was the glow-colized, like, it's supposed to be, like, globalized, and then I think, like, Cali is in California. So, one... I don't know. I don't and know. And that's, like, extremely trying to be... The but the big thing is that, like, this is a thing that happens in academia, and this is just such an extreme one, where they're just, like... One, they're trying to be funny, but to academics. They're also, like, just filling it with, like, all these buzzwords that they have in their head... Uh-huh. But they're like, oh, I'm thinking about, like, glocalized culture or whatever, you know? Yeah. Did and you notice that one of the tags on this is Shakespeare, cinema, postmodern, glocalization? Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is, there are probably papers about this. Yeah. But, like, all of this is, like, because the way that you write in academia yeah. is that you are, like, trying to situate yourself in, like, a critical space where different people are talking about things and you're trying to, like, mark out who you're having conversations with through these papers and everything. But it's all for, like, such a limited audience. Mm-hmm. And so you write this thing that, like, is really hard to to comprehend. But if I try to break this down to you, it, it is basically like, hey, we lived in a postmodern society now where what the idea of a text is is different than it was during Shakespeare's time. Mm-hmm. We have, like, a different sense of text where it, it is... Um, we, we've come to understandings of text such as even the written text is, like, an interactive thing to some degree. Yeah. It is a thing that, like, you as the reader bring things to, you affect it. Whoever is reading it or interacting with the text is in some way affecting that text. People have different readings on it. In a way things. that, like, the text when the Bible was written, was very different than it is now. Yeah. To go to, like, a really extreme, you yeah. know? Text that, that, like, to write down the word was, like, a fucking monumental thing, and now I, like, now you say Blue Blairman, and you tweet that. <laughs> I chosted that, please. You know, Dalinar Colon or whatever can't read. <laughs> most, most people couldn't read for a really fucking long time. Um... So, like, what what the text is, what, like, writing, what interpreting text is, has just changed over time. So, that's the first part that they're saying. Um, And then they're saying, and now there are these ways where, like, things will, like, be reinterpreted and blend. And there will be, like, like, adaptation is a sense of a thing that didn't really used to exist. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, All these things have changed. And we now have these things like... Shakespeare adaptations, these specific ones that are trying to actually adapt what is like what to modern, what to at the time contemporary audiences of the Shakespeare plays, what they would be getting out of it, 
instead of just replicating like iambic pentameter and all that stuff and right. having it exist in that is trying to actually replicate what like Shakespeare was kind of a play for common people. Shakespearean plays were com- for common right. people. Uh, there was lots of jokes in them, mm-hmm. things like that. Yeah. Now it has this stuffy sense. Now there are these films that are trying to situate it in a way that like West coast Gen Xers will understand. Yeah. Yeah. That's basically what this is saying. Yeah. And you people in academia, you could just fucking say that your writing will be better. You can still talk about the other thing, the other conversations that you're like situating yourself in. Your writing will still be better. Yeah. Which is right for fucking human beings. Please. Anyway, um, you can talk about whatever shit you want to do. I'm going to just live on the podcast, uh, type in, that's not how you spell scholar. I'm just going to see if there's any face-off. Yeah, go for it. I don't have a ton else. I was thinking about, oh, funny <laughs> face-offsetting method is what Google auto-completed here. Um, I um, hear someone doing a, a cheeky face-off, but referring to a different thing that they're doing, which people love to do. People love to have a, a paper that's about like a fucking new gene that they found that's tied to cancer and then they'll do some jokey reference to a movie in the title yeah academia people are fucking insufferable (laughs) (laughs) um the um my favorite joke in this movie which i think only plays if you are familiar with other john woo movies which i think is probably a reasonable thing to think of an audience member in 1997 you know i like John Woo got parodied on The Simpsons, I think, you know? Um, so, <clears throat> my favorite bit in the movie, or my favorite joke, is specifically, there's a scene in the church with the million candles, you know it if you've seen other John Woo stuff, um, and uh, Troy, posing as Archer, is at this funeral for this FBI guy that he killed, but he made it look like a heart attack or something. So, um, and meanwhile, um, Archer as Troy is like coming in off the beach toward this. And as he is slow-mo walking up the beach toward this funeral, which is why is the funeral on the beach? I don't understand that part. Who cares? Doesn't matter. You see seagulls flying around him and in my head, and I think I said this to you, I'm like, oh, those are supposed to be doves. Where are the doves? This is a John Woo movie. Where are the fucking doves at? And I yeah. think there's a joke about how those are the, the seagulls are kind of like the doves of the peach. Yeah. <laughs> and then he walks into the church, and there's the doves. For yeah. some reason, there's a, dozens and dozens of doves flying around <laughs> this church <laughs> on a beach. <laughs> anyway, you found some articles. Yeah. Um... So this one, uh, at one with the other, an examination of John Woo's vision, climaxing and face-off. This seems to have been written not too long after face-off came out. Mm-hmm. Um, this one, the, the text isn't that fun to read all of, but uh, basically seems to be making this argument that like John Woo's films in general um, 
talk about the loosening of boundaries between the self and the other and about like seeing yourself in the other and self-identity and things like that in the way that like you talk about other John Woo movies being about how the police and the criminals are not that different. Yeah. And that's kind of what this movie is about, but also about there is a reassertment of the self usually in the yeah. end. There is an assertment of no, the FBI agent is actually in fact different that by trading bodies, they are not the same. Yes. You know, in that body, he's actually able to like enact fatherly goodness yes. in the lives of people. Absolutely, and I think I think the killer and hard boiled also play with this boundary and then reassert like, no, bad is bad is and good is good. Yes, and yeah. so this just seems to be kind of a survey of his other stuff and then how it like comes to a climax and face off a thing that is like literally about training the self and the other. Yes. Um. Has lots of shots of people looking into mirrors and seeing their enemy. Uh huh. You know. Yeah. Um, in a way that's like kind of <laughs> obvious for if you're gonna write a paper about this. Can we talk about how? Okay. Troy, in his final moments, he's like, "Oh, I have one final way that I'm going to get back at Archer. I'm going to fuck up his face before he can get his face back. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put a bunch of scars on it." And so he starts. He gets a knife out and he starts carving around his face. In the exact spot where they would like cut to take the face off and put on. Yes. It's like you're just getting the job started for them. Yeah. <laughs> if I were if I were Troy and I wanted to mess up Archer's face, I would start at the top and I would go down across the diagonal. Like I would just mess up the most face real estate yeah. in the least amount of time. He I goes, would just go for like X, and then I would just like start turning it into an asterisk, maybe. Yeah, like you know, you want you want the most in the middle of the face because the sides of the face are what they already took off. Yeah. Also, they have magic never scar anymore technology. Also, it's really funny when John Travolta says, you can get rid of the scar on my chest. I don't need it anymore because I'm going after to adopt a the other guy's of, son. After making a big deal the during the original one of, I need you to restore this scar because it's important to me. I don't want everyone to forget this. <laughs> mm -hmm. My son who died. But now I'm going to adopt Troy's son so I can forget yes. Michael, actually. Now I've killed the man who killed my son, and I'm also taking his son, and so my son is just as... And also his son looks conveniently similar to mine, so he's just Michael now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this scene where he's like, I, I have something to like ask you or whatever, and then like coming out of the mist. <laughs> they have a thought. So John Travolta walks up to the front door, and you get like... The there's this beautiful LA home and outside of the home is the sun and there is also I think a floodlight being positioned roughly where the sun would be and then to the side on like the porch of this home is a fog machine so you get the most ridiculous fucking shot of John Travolta re-entering the home and then the, the new sun walks in out of the like fog machine it's stupid this movie's stupid i had so much fun <laughs> yeah um this one i it doesn't really have an abstract that i can find um and so the title of it is face off cultural and institutional violence within the american dream 
But like a lot of the text at the beginning isn't quite getting to that point yet. Mm. And it's kind of just talking about a similar thing where they're saying like, whereas earlier films saw a symbolic kinship between male characters, Face-Off takes the relationship to its logical conclusion by having them merge bodily identities with each other. Mm. Which is kind of what the other one was saying. It's just from a different point of view because it's going to go more into this other like institutional violence. Yeah. Um... I'm going to I'm going to look at uh this one's just John Woo's cinema of hyperkinetic violence from a better tomorrow to face off. Um but again no abstract. The abstract's really the part where that I can like really latch onto something. Yeah. Um sometimes the intros can be good, but um I'm not going to spend time on that one. This is the one that I really wanted to to just take a gander at on the yeah. podcast cuz this title um is like I can I can maybe see where you're going here, but also uh, it's kind of funny. This is kind of what we've been saying, but I think maybe this person is going to like. I love it. when you have to click this show full title button. It only gave me one more word. <laughs> uh, sometimes you just get a shit ton more. Anyway, um, so the title of this is "Giving Hegemonic Masculinity a Facelift: Masquerade." in John Woo's face-off and the uh, somatechnics of masculinity in crisis. This is stupid. I don't know what somatechnics are. You should not have a word I've never heard in my life in the title. Um, I kind of know what this is getting at, but... <laughs> I, I don't know this specific word, but I know the constituent parts in a way. We're maybe we'll start guessing at it, but I'm not gonna... It's, it's a stupid word to have. Anyway... Um, I'm reading the abstract. Yeah. Sorry. So in 1990s America, the question of what made a real man was at the forefront of debates about sex and gender. During this pivotal moment in American history, hegemonic masculinity, you know what hegemonic means? Yes. Yeah. Like at the, yeah. anyway, uh, hegemonic masculinity in particular was experiencing numerous threats to its ontological security. Not sure what ontology is. Not concerned about it right now. It's the study of being. Okay. So, like, the ontological security is, like, um, masculinity is this thing that is not questioned. It just is. Mm -hmm. Now that is being questioned. Yes. The, the ontological security is becoming disrupted. Okay. In the same way that, like, TERFs are all up in arms about, like, oh, nobody knows what woman is anymore. And it's, like, well, it's just because, like... There's being like there's a greater interrogation of like what does woman mean, mm -hmm. and it's not just this like oh a woman means like these very obvious like innate things that are supposed to be what a woman is yeah and it means all these other things you know all that's being disrupted yeah nineties this was this always happens around queer people especially uh, which by the way there's some of that shit happening in the nineties America. So, saying masculinity. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, masculinity was infamously pronounced uh, in crisis. The advent of the new man betrayed anxieties about the image-conscious and feminine performance of masculinity, and there was mounting social pressures from civil rights, feminist, and queer groups for straight white masculinity to be challenged as the center of the patriarchal stage. So That is a run-on sentence. It is a run-on sentence, but it's kind of... I think this is actually doing, I think, a decent job of, like, further explaining yes. what they mean by the ontological security thing. Yeah. Which is good. 
Yeah. If you're going to introduce something that's going to be a little bit harder to like parse for everyone, I think it's good to have another sentence that's going to explain that concept. Mm. Um, even if it's a little bit of a mouthful. Um, in short, by the way, uh, straight white masculinity definitely kind of scared of mouthfuls. <laughs> <laughs> Just had to get that joke in there. Uh, anyway, in short, uh, the issue for masculinity in the 90s was that of legitimacy. The response from Hollywood was an influx of films which featured leading men in costume, disguise, or masquerade. Um, so this is also where you get like, I'm assuming Doubtfire was in the 90s. I assume Doubtfire, so. Doubtfire, that feels like a 90s thing. There's a bunch of these though. Tootsie. Um, That's late 80s, but... Yeah. Um, Start of a trend. Anyway, um, the response was an influx of films uh, which featured leading men in costume, disguise, or masquerade. John Woo's face-off is one such film that betrays anxieties about the constructedness of hegemonic masculinity. Face-off does so thoroughly... Or through... uh, Face-off does so through the motif of plastic surgery. In this article, I'll explore how Face-Off uses the image uh, image of plastic surgery to represent the masculinities of its male protagonists as masquerades. So some of this is probably tying it into how plastic surgery is a thing associated with the feminine because of like the surgeries you would get for cosmetic reasons, which real men would never need to do, but mm. women need to do to make themselves look pretty. You're right. You know, um... Then I will distrem- uh, demonstrate how plastic surgery and face-off is a device which transforms the hegemonic masculinity so that it may adapt to the climate of crisis and secure its continuation. Um, face-off demonstrates that masculinity is a construct which masquerades as an as an ontology. So, but also I'm a mis- yeah that part at the end is a little bit where I'm like because I think what this film is doing from this perspective is specifically doing the masquerade is doing the plastic surgery is doing something that has a certain amount of like both of these more masculine men going through some feminine process of, of mm-hmm. plastic surgery and change. Mm-hmm. And then in it, like having to confront anxieties, but then again, like reasserting a certain value and in the process, like, Showing the failures of the the criminal right. masculinity that is like never still about feelings or anything. It's not about that, but yeah. it's specifically about like sex and sexuality. Yes. Even though it is all straight sex, so there's still like the, yes. the inherent fear, the inherent terror of yeah. this film. So it, this is probably given the word I kind of laughed seeing the, this title because there's Soma Technics, <laughs> which uh, my personal to uh, this is Kate Bowen. Mm-hmm. My my advice to Kate Bowen, if you're listening, um, this article sounds pretty good, and I think the abstract is fairly well written. I would like Soma Technics to be explained in the abstract. Yeah, <laughs> like what what you, exactly you're talking about there? Yeah, um, because this is just how I think. You can sometimes do these big word like overly I'm trying to seem really intelligent words, but I just think you need to have the space to explain them. Um and there's like a good structure to it of like titles. Sometimes you'll have those big things that feel like buzzwords or jargon. Explain it in an abstract. Uh-huh. Explain your big things in the abstract and then in the paper. You'll bring stuff up, you'll explain it more, blah blah blah. Yeah. Um 
I understand academics, they don't like having to explain what had like hegemony means. And sometimes you just have to have a point where you're like, this is fine. But it just really makes it just, there's a point at which you're like performing that you're smart. Quick. This is like not related to the thing we've been talking about at all, but also it is related. So Archer goes to prison. He's posing as Nicolas Cage and he goes to prison. And in the prison, there is a bad guard. Mm-hmm. Um, who's the, okay. It is established. The, the, the Geneva convention doesn't apply in this prison. Nobody fucking knows about this black site. Like where we keep all the worst, like this is super Guantanamo basically. Yeah. You know, and it's also like really established that, Archer has sent a lot of people here. Yes. He recognizes most of the guys here because this is where he puts them. Yes. You know? And he meets this guard. And this guard is like, you know, if I say jump, you say how high or whatever. Bullshit like that. Um, <clears throat> um, and Archer's conclusion, and seemingly the movie like frames this in a way that Archer is correct here. Is that if we just took, if we just got rid of that one bad guard, this prison would be fine. Everything about the whole concept of this prison is yeah. fine as long as you have good guards. We've set it up where there is no Geneva con- Convention like <laughs> applying here. There's no like structural, systemic checks on this place. There's no like way to like ensure that things are being like fair to the prisoners mm-hmm. in any way. Yeah. But the problem is just, we need to get this guy out of here. Uh huh. And the only way we're aware of this problem is that one of the FBI guys <laughs> is in there in disguise. Yes. Seemingly. And <laughs> I think this is like thematic to like a lot of the other stuff that's happening in the movie because it's like, Oh, what's the line between the cop and the criminal, et cetera, et cetera. But like the movie's answer to that is like, oh, but Archer's a good cop. He's doing it for the right reasons. <laughs> and yeah. don't worry about it. I mean, also like Troy as Archer, you get a certain amount of like, oh, when someone is like has malicious intent or is just like mad with power or is just like Wants to, like, better his buddies or whatever. Yeah. And has all this power that this, like, high-ranking FBI agent has. Yes. He and can, he can really cause some problems. Yeah. But luckily, Archer doesn't want to do that, and so the whole system is fine. Yeah. <laughs> but the solution is to then just put the, the, the good guy in that role. Yeah. But not through any sort of systemic thing that is going to, like, see that Troy is Archer is this like bad actor. Yeah. But just that the, you literally just swap in same body, but like good guy now. Yeah. That's all you need to do to <laughs> fix this problem. It's so stupid. You just need the, you just need the change of heart. Yeah. And it, in this case, literal changing of human beings, but like, you know, yeah. Um, the other part that's really funny to me is, he has apparently sent a lot of, the, not to like cinema sins a little bit, uh-huh. but this part was just especially funny to me. 
is hit like there's this whole plan for him to go to this prison, mm-hmm. you know, disguised uh, as Troy. Um, you know, he sent a bunch of people there. He's like aware of this prison, even though most people are not. Yeah. He finally escapes and ends up on the roof and it's like an oil rig and he seems like shocked and like, oh no, I'm in the middle of the ocean. I'm on Alcatraz. And it's like, did did you not know what this was? When you were doing this whole plan, did you not look into like, where's the prison located? Was no blah, blah, part blah. of the plan. And, yeah, No point were you aware of where this prison was located. <laughs> no one ever put into the plan. Hey, we're going to have a way for you specifically to escape in case something goes wrong. No one had the foresight to think we'll have a we'll have some like ev- way to evacuate you from the prison. Yeah. No one thought of that. I can understand like we don't want a bunch of the guards to know, but maybe there's like one who we like trust and blah blah blah. But they just don't who feel like let guards. in on this. Yeah, none of the guards know. Yeah. Stupid. The FBI is so stupid. We're just going to have all of the people who do know in one room so that when the guy wakes up who's in a coma, who could see this coming, can just kill them all in that room. Can just tie (laughs) them up. We'll actually just have them sit in chairs all around each other so that he just has to get the rope and then light the building on fire. Could I... We had a really stupid running gag through this movie. I don't even remember. So, uh, Troy's little brother gets really annoyed when Troy calls him bro. Oh, yeah. And I just laughed every time. We'd just be like, yeah, I don't know why they put bro in the subtitles. He's clearly saying Anaki here. (laughs) Yeah. This is just the people we've become. (laughs) Yeah. I actually really love it when they translate Anaki into bro in the subtitles. It is good. It's good. If you're going to localize it as anything, it should be bro. In my opinion. (laughs) Or if it's a slightly more serious um, movie and you want to do that tone, you could have him say brother. Uh Uh-huh. But bro is like... Bro is what's getting coming across here. A little chef kiss there. do we feel about the stairs and face-off? So, remember how we talked about what's great about old movies where they built sets? Yes. Is they could blow up the sets. Yeah. They blew up the stairs. They blew up the stairs. There's been a... There were a few... There's a part where we're like, there's not been that many stairs in this movie. And then he runs up a bunch of stairs to escape. There's like a uh-huh. bunch of other stairs. There's that the stairs that I mentioned because there's the multiple floors in the little like warehouse thing. Uh-huh. And they do destroy a bunch of that. But as they're running, they also go to a part that's just like the weird entrance to a bank or something. Yeah. You know, except, like, more crowded with just, like, mirrors and plants and shit. For some reason. Yeah. It's like the, like, atrium to, like, a mansion or something. There's a bit where Archer and Troy are both on, like, other sides of a mirror talking to each other. And then point guns at... Yes. What building in human history has ever needed... In the middle of a room for there to be a ceiling high mirror 
that is also a mirror on the other side. It's two mirrors on just two sides of a wall, basically. Yes, in the middle a little of, bit a of a room. Wall in but it's not like if this was like a department store and that was for like seeing yourself in the mirror, I'd be like, okay, that's a little over the top, but sure. And I didn't think about it while I was watching the movie. I'm not doing my cinema sins thing. I was not like distracted in the movie. But now that we're talking about it, I'm like, what was the reason that that was there? Yeah. <laughs> what was the space where they were doing this? But anyway, in that space, that weird atrium full of mirrors, there's also a, a like fairly ornate staircase that goes down. I don't even know where that goes up to. I don't remember either. The roof. Question mark. Maybe? I guess. They were on the roof briefly after this, because this is how the girlfriend is quickly disposed of, so that once he ends up adopting the kid at the end, you don't have to worry about. So what's up with her? Yeah. Also, it's really funny, because he's like, he tells her... No, but then she dies for real in the... Oh, yes, you're right. The final fight. Yeah, she dies at the end, not in that scene. But they get, like, separated there or something. Yeah, something like that. Anyway... Um, at the, so there's the whole, like the FBI are raiding and Archer as Troy is trying to escape and then comes into this weird atrium place. And then Troy as Archer walks down the stairs and it's like, Oh, but it's not the best shot of him going down the stairs, but he does go down the stairs. You see his like shoes on the steps. Yeah. Um, and for a while in that, in that atrium, you'd been seeing the stairs in the background, and I was like, I hope they do something with it. Goes down, and then there's, like, the whole big f- fight that they have where they're yeah. shooting each other, and there's the scene where they're on the opposite sides of the pillar with the mirrors uh-huh. and everything. And then, um, you know, John Travolta is Cage. At Archer is Troy. Uh-huh. Uh, runs up the stairs while Troy is Archer fires a bazooka or something? I don't... I don't remember why there's an, an explosion, explosion happens. <laughs> I the, don't remember the why. The stairs explode as he's running up in. It fucking rocks. Yeah. We, we were not asking ourselves in the moment, why are these stairs exploding? Because <laughs> in the moment, we were like, yo, the they stairs the are stairs. exploding! Yeah. <laughs> That's all we cared about. Yeah. So, Who I did. They blew up the stairs. I feel like this is an S. I, I was going to go with an A+, plus, but we could do S. They blew up the stairs. <laughs> uh, I feel like I said a lot of like cinema sins shit in here. I was not thinking any of this while I was watching the movie. The movie just sweeps you up in it. Yeah. Um. The only time while watching the movie, I was just like, what the fuck? Was just when he went up on the top of the prison... And was just surrounded yes. by water and was so confounded by the fact that he was in water <laughs> and could not escape. And I was just like, because so much before that had just set up, like, also, him knowing all the people there. And I was just like. Also, it just ends up not being a problem because he just swims his way back to L.A. Yeah. It's really funny, too, because, like, the... <clears throat> So you cut to the FBI office and Troy as Archer is there and all the other people, the FBI are like, oh, Troy escaped. And Troy as Archer is like, oh, he's going to be back in L.A. And they're like, no, no, no. He, you know, they didn't recover the body, but like, hey, there's no way he could swim. And like Troy or, or Troy as Archer is like, no, he's going to be back in L.A. Like, <laughs> I know this motherfucker. Yeah. 
I understand movie logic. Yeah. <laughs> Y'all don't realize you're in a movie right now. Yeah. There's a there's they a They just took my face off. <laughs> I'm in a movie right now. <laughs> they have so many dumb subplots about the family. But not one minute of this movie is just Nicolas Cage looking haggard as he just swam 50 <laughs> miles or whatever. You couldn't so much as get just like him washing up on the beach like, fuck, dude, I'm tired. <laughs> he just gets there. It's fine. The next time you see him, he's stolen someone's car and he's... But the thing is, this entire movie is about being a dad. Yes. So, you, of course, you can't see Nicolas Cage looking yeah. tired. You have to see dad scenes. This movie could easily have been an hour 50 if you just cut out all the dad the, things. The funniest part in all of... There's just a lot of stuff where something will happen, and then you 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 kind of know how it's going to come back. Uh-huh. Right? Yeah. Especially as you start to realize that, like, every little weird detail that they focused on, like the literally, tying the shoes and everything, all literally of that everything. Yeah. Any weird aff- affectation that anyone does that, like, in some movies, you just be like, yeah, remember that weird scene where Nicolas Cage just, like, ties a guy's shoe? Yeah. This movie is intentionally doing it because it's going to come back. Yeah. But the part where you just know what's going to happen. Uh-huh. Is when he gives the daughter the butterfly knife, and you're like, "My guy, that's going in your leg later in this movie." Do you not know? You might. You okay? <laughs> he has been putting moves on his fake daughter, like two scenes prior, basically. And now in this scene, he's like, "Hey, if any guys try anything funny with you, you just take this butter knife, butterfly knife, and you stab them." And then he tries something funny with her. And I'm like, you set this situation up. You were the one who provided the butterfly knife. And if you had not done, if you had not given her a means for protecting herself from the thing that you were going to do. Yeah. <laughs> that I'm glad that she had that knife, you know. Young women should be able to protect themselves from, like, men who are trying to be lecherous in the way that he is lecherous. It's a great scene where he he grabs her and is going to try and use her as a hostage. And you instantly know what's going to happen. What is his thing with tongues in this movie? I don't know. He literally... That's another thing that's set Um, up. In In the first scene, Nicolas Cage... Not in the first scene, but early on, Nicolas Cage sees this flight attendant and he's like, I want to suck your tongue or you want to suck my tongue. And then later you meet his girlfriend who's like, all you ever talk about is me sucking your tongue. What's this thing with suck getting his tongue sucked? I don't know. There are many parts of the body that are better to have sucked than the tongue. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, anyway, I'm going to ask if we have any questions. Oh, any we didn't emails? solicit we questions. Juho I... sent in a question to Ghost Divers. Yeah. I remember that happening. I anyway. will look, but I don't think we got any questions. Um, I was like, I remember an email coming in recently. I just have to say, um, the one other thing. Mm-hmm. Which is... While watching this movie, 
I developed a theory. Okay. About why so many directors in the 90s? Yes, yes. We're we foot have, freaks. We have to talk about the foot freak thing. And it's because nobody in the 90s knew what a good ass was. No. So there's there's a shot in this movie that's like two seconds of like John Travolta's wife is like getting in the car and, and Troy as Archer is like looking at her ass and it's like a just quick shot of like, ooh, ass. And she has the flattest ass in the world. Yeah. Just the skinniest ass. I'm not saying that there aren't situations where her ass could look good, but these pants are not like... No. Absolutely This is not. 90s. Does, does this... Do these pants make my butt look big? Yeah. Where, like, you are also trying to minimize your flat ass, even though it's already flat. Yes. Meanwhile, like, ten minutes later in the movie, they're fucking, and you get a loving luxurious foot shot. Yeah. <laughs> you get the whole leg, but especially just all this attention on the foot. And it's like, well, yeah, I guess you would be a foot freak if that's what you thought good ass was. Yeah. They just don't know what a good ass is. <laughs> Nobody in the 90s knew what a good ass was. No dis- except for Sir Mix-a-Lot, who was trying to tell everyone. <laughs> no disrespect to any foot freaks in our audience. We love you. Yeah. We're not trying, you know, if that's your thing, that's your thing. I'm just saying that, like, this is a very, like, big thing in the ni- 90s is foot freaks. And maybe it's because no one knew about ass yet. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone just wanted the most anorexic, waif-thin yeah. woman. And at that point, it's like, oh, well, okay, I guess feet. Yeah. Like, legs. Like yeah. Legs also look better. Whatever. Don't worry about it. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's my theory. Yeah. Um, next time. Um, we are not going to watch Hamlet. Next we week, might come back around to Hamlet at some point, but I think we've just thrown Hamlet out the window. Yeah. Next week, we um, have ghost divers and things are going to be kind of hard. So we have to watch and record in one night. So we wanted a 90 minute movie. We chose Millennium Actress by Kone Satoshi. Um, you offered... Perfect Blue or Millennium Actress. I was like, well, I haven't seen Millennium Actress, so I would like to see Millennium yeah. Actress. And you're like, hmm, how long are they, though? And both of them are under 90 minutes. Yes. Millennium Actress is like seven minutes longer. But like, that's... It'll be fine. They're, they're both under 90. Who cares? I've yeah. seen Perfect Blue before. I would like to see Millennium Actress. I'll probably rewatch Perfect Blue this week. I might try I've to... I've been wanting to rewatch it, so... I might try to watch a Setsuko Hara movie. Hara movie. Yeah, there's. I think they put some on the Criterion. Yeah, yeah I'll probably try and watch. That's them too. Wh- that's why I was on my mind because I knew this movie is like loosely inspired by her, and it, obviously I've seen her in No Regrets for Our Youth. I might have seen her in something else as well, but um, I maybe like I'll get around. Maybe not Tokyo Story. I don't know that I'm in the mood for Tokyo Story. I know that's like a slow, boring movie, but maybe there's something I could like. Let me just pull up. Um... Because, yeah, like, Ozu's, like, one of the big ones that people will, will. Um, I mean, I'm going to pull up, while you do this, I'm going to pull up the Criterion channel and see, like, what it was that they put in that, like. Oh, um, yeah, that's that's a good idea. <clears throat> um, Yeah, I feel like most of what I've seen her in has been Ozu stuff. I know there's probably a few that are. Here we go. 
No regrets for our youth. Here's the young lady. Late spring. Early summer. The idiot. Uh, that's a three-hour movie. Otherwise, I would have done that. Repast. Tokyo Story. Sound of the Mountain. Tokyo Twilight. Late Autumn. Or The End of Summer. Those are all Ozu movies. I don't know. I I, um, I mentioned recently that I would like to get into Ozu, but also, like, I'm just enjoying my hmm. manga and my Star Trek, and, like, Ozu makes you know, sad dramas about people living regular lives, and the thing that I'm enjoying right now is the escapism of Star Trek. Um, I think The Idiot is Kurosawa. The Idiot is Kurosawa. Yes. And The Sound uh, Sound of the Mountain is Naruse, who I haven't okay. seen much of, but I think I've seen this one. Okay. And um, there's, like, one other that I've seen from him. I, I feel really underwatched on him. But, um... Yeah, I don't know if I'm gonna find it right right away because he, he directed many movies, roughly two movies a year every year from like 1930 to 1967. It looks yes. like. I think the other one that I've seen from him is "Wife Be Like Old Rose." Mm. Um. Anyway, but yeah, I'll, I'll probably try and find at least one to watch. I've been really meaning to like make a project of watching through all of Kurosawa's films again. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really funny that you're thinking about that. And earlier today, I was like, I should just pull the trigger on trying to watch all of Spielberg's movies. Yeah. Um, but I forgot that the idiot was that long. Yeah, I've wanted to watch that movie for a while, but it's almost three hours, and so I just never have gotten around to it. Anyway, are we done here? We're done here. We need to do pugs. You can find me on Twitter at autumnal underscore coffee. You can find me on co-host at autumnal. You can go to exportodd.io. That will take you to the Patreon page where we have links to all our free feeds for podcasts. You can find this podcast, for example, in the free feed by going to exportodd.io slash ornate stairwells. Or you could find um, our Lord of the Rings podcast by going to exportodd.io slash backend. Um... Or you can give us a dollar a month. You can get all the podcasts, or a lot of the podcasts, not everything, but most things, um, a week early in the Patreon feed. Um, uh, or you can give us $5 a month, and you can um, get access to Pop Town Punk, which is a very good podcast. We just watched Sleeping Beauty. We're about to watch a random-ass episode of Gold- Golden Girls. So I'm really excited for Golden Girls. I am, too. Um, neither of us have ever seen that show. I know I've talked on this podcast and other podcasts about David Sly, who's a friend of the family. Mm. Uh, his favorite show was Golden Girls, mm. so I just have extreme affection for it. Where can people find you Anyone? online? Oh. Sorry. If you give a dollar mm-hmm. to the network, mm-hmm. you are listening to this. It is a Tuesday. Yes. Tomorrow, if you are a one dollar patron you will get the foreword to Pondering Pluton, mm-hmm. which is going to be a week early for patrons. Yeah. So get in on the ground floor. Remind me, I need to set up export on .io slash Pluton. Yeah, and also Pluton schedule. Yeah. Um, We can do that after we finish recording. Maybe. Uh, I have no. the login on my laptop. I don't okay. think it's on my phone. Anyway. Um, You can follow me at FoxPlumNia. Um, on both Twitter and co-host, you can also follow me at Foxmomnia on Letterboxd. Mm. 
I always forget to mention that, but this is the podcast to do it. Um, you can listen to my other podcasts, Ghost Divers and Pondering Putan with Ajishio Otaro and Hachimitsu Boy. And I think, do I have anything else I say? Can't think of anything. Right now, the Bacano episodes are coming out for Ghost Divers, and then after that, is Lane next after that? Yeah, so uh, at the time that you're listening to this, uh, we are going to do the question bucket, I think on Thursday, so two days from now, for Bacano. So if you have watched Bacano and have questions for us, for me, Connor, or John Charles, who's been guesting with us, you're writing to ghostdiverspod at gmail.com. Um, and we will just have fun answering them. Yeah. And that's it. But yeah, Lane, Lane will be like in two weeks. Though. Yeah, let's get out of here. Okokoro is real. Okokoro is real. Bye.
Yeah. Yeah. He he was an editor for Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Amberson. The Curse of the Cat People was his first movie. His and he first was, directorial. Yeah, his first direct his first like as director movie. Yeah. The second then, Cat People movie. The second Cat People movie from 1944. And then he made a kind of racist maybe looking movie in 2000. <laughs> and he did Star Trek. The movie. <laughs> the motion picture. Yeah, sometimes people... And The Sound of Music. Sometimes people are bad at retiring. West Side Story. The, the thing that's the wildest about the gamut of this career to me is that you just... You have stuff like West... West Side Story and The Sound of Music. I... And then you also have, like, I Want to Live, which I... Actually, the, I remember that one being kind of a B-movie. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't. I'm seeing it was nominated for stuff. Some of this stuff feels like it was extreme B-movie. I am surprised that the guy who directed... If you told me the guy who directed The, the Day the Earth Stood Still also directed Star Trek The Motion Picture... That's not surprising to me. But What's surprising said, to me is that between... the sound of music <laughs> <laughs> and West Side Story, yeah, and the haunting, yeah, and the Bet- haunting between West Side Story and Sound of Music took a quick little detour to make a horror movie. <laughs> anyway, I don't know if this is the beginning or the end. I was just flabbergasted and decided to hit record. I had a little bit planned for the beginning, so this is the end. Okay. <laughs> My man edited Citizen Kane and the Magnificent Ambersons in fucking 41 and 42. And then was still directing movies and in then 2000. And in 2000 made a telemovie. A telemovie. In, in 1989 made a real movie. Yeah. Wait, who's in A Storm in Summer? That movie did look racist. I want to see what it is. Made-for-television drama, directed by Robert Wise, starring Peter, Peter Falk, Falk? <laughs> Natasha Kinski, <laughs> and Ruby D. Should we watch this? It Maybe. looked racist, but like... The, the poster was just some old white man holding a black child, and I was like, this feels weird and bad. Rod Serling first wrote the original script in 1970, <laughs> and the filmmakers reused the same one for this production. Serling's script was post-posthumously honored with an Emmy nomination and a Writers Guild Award. Rod Serling wrote this movie... <laughs> I don't know if we're going to have the time to, like, actually watch this together. No, but we in could. In the coming week. But we could both try to hunt this down and yeah. watch it just to. Yeah. <laughs> this seems like something I can easily put on while at work, even though it's a thing that's harder for me to do now. Yeah. People will hear that yeah. earlier because this is coming later. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Weird. I should watch, um... I downloaded, um, speaking of Rod Serling, I downloaded Beneath the Planet of the Apes, the second Apes movie. I should watch that this week. Yeah. I just want to, like, I just want to get those done. It's five movies. If I, like, put my nose to the grindstone, I can knock it out in a couple of weeks. I just got to do it, you know? Yeah. (laughs) If I put my nose to the grindstone, I could knock that out in a week, but I would rather, I'm going to watch Beneath the Planet of the Apes and then come back in a week or two and watch, you know... The third one. I don't remember the names. Yeah. I know there's Battle 4. I know there's... 
I anyway. I've watched a bunch of these. I cannot tell you the names of them, and especially not the order of them. <laughs> no, I'm not that kind of. I could barely tell you the order of the new ones that have come out while I have been like alive and paying yeah. attention to new releases. I think it was Rise, and then Dawn, and then War. Yeah. Anyway, you were, when I first started freaking I, out about this, you were like, let me tell you about a, Akira Kurosawa. Yeah. And I was like, this is different, though. Because Kurosawa is making Kurosawa movies, and Robert Weiss is like a guy who has a job. Yes. You know? <laughs> But also in a way where some of those are, like, classics that people talk about. Yes. And then some of the other ones are just completely forgotten, for the most part. Other than probably, like, some of those... And I'm not saying, like, Curse of the Cat people. That's in, like, a B-movie thing that I think people would still take notice of. There are some of those that I haven't heard of, and I'm sure most people have watched them because it's Robert Wise, the man who (laughs) did The Sound of Music and Star Trek, the motion picture. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And I'm not saying that every single one of Kurosawa's ones like a hit and people talk about, but like... He, he, is, he is an auteur in the way that Robert Weiss maybe doesn't have the same reputation. Yeah, most of these movies like it set you down and show them to you and you would know that they are Kurosawa, especially if you have like, you've now seen... Um, no regrets for a youth. And so you have like a general sense of like early Kurosawa. Mm-hmm. That's like the one big divide is that you hit like, especially if you like stray dog becomes this big turning point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you're starting to see it in like drunken angel and the quiet duel. Um, and then like there's the early ones, but if you have a general sense of early Kurosawa and then Kurosawa in general, like his later stuff, you kind of just like, you see a Kurosawa movie and you know, it's the man, uh-huh. you know? Robert Wise is here to direct the movie that he's been told to direct. Yes. You know? And sometimes you will apparently do a banger. <laughs> <laughs> um, the one big one here is Scandal, which is just... Mm-hmm. It's his worst movie. It's oh, Kurosawa's that... worst movie. Okay. I've told you about this, right? Yeah, probably. It's the one uh, where there were... Let me see if like I can get the actual details here. Um... So, uh, yeah, he described it as a protest film about the rise of the press in Japan and its habitual confusion of freedom with uh, a freedom with license. Personal privacy is never respected and a scandal sheets are the worst offenders. Uh, So essentially what happened was that the newspapers were uh, writing these like things about how he was sleeping with like one of his actresses, Mm -hmm. which what I know from that man may have been. Yeah, but he made an entire film about how it's horrible and evil for uh, people to spread rumors that are completely unfounded like that through the newspaper. Mm. So I love on the waterfront. Yeah, so it's a false scandal, and uh, you know this whole big. I'm rolling my eyes. Yeah. Um, can I tell you something? Yeah, it's his worst film. Mm-hmm. All the acting in it kind of sucks. Uh huh. Mifune is still kind of hot in it, though. <laughs> Should we start the podcast? Yeah, sure. <laughs> I mean, we, I just figured we'd get the energy up. Yeah. Yeah. You know? We got it. We found it. Yeah. We've both been low energy. 
Y'all have already heard this. It's been a long day. I'm fucking tired. Yeah. It's been a long day. It's been a long week. I had three days off and it still felt like a long week. You know? What's a day off? (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, let's start the podcast. Okay, I'm going to do a little mark so I know where to cut it. Yeah.